0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome. It's great to be with you. Great to be able to uh, rejoice together, to uh, worship, and uh, bring our hearts before the Lord. Uh, it was a bummer not to be with you last week, but I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Brian Wade. He did a great job with the message last week, and so that was. Uh, if you were, yeah, Amen, Amen, yeah. And so if you were not able to be here for whatever reason, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, It's a great way to be able to kind of catch your heart up with all that God's doing, uh, as he spoke that word over us, a really, really helpful one. And so uh, we're going to continue in that series today, Building the People of God. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it to Exodus chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you, a hardback black one. I would love for you to follow along so you can see. uh, These words are vitally important words that need to transform us, and so I I want you to be able to see them on your own. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, you're welcome to take that one home with you. We would really love for everybody to have a copy of the Word of God. And if you don't, uh, you do now. That one's yours. You can have that one and uh, be able to read along with us as we journey together. Um, Mark Sayers uh, is an Australian pastor and a cultural observer, thinker. Uh, He uh, recently published a book called A Non-Anxious Presence. And in his book, he, he makes a number of statements, but one of the ones that I find most profound is uh, basically the idea that the, uh, the increase of polarization and tribalization that's happening in the world around us, where uh, people t- tend to be far on one side or far on the other side, where uh, the, the world seems increasingly divided, uh, Sayers makes the case that that division is actually coming from a lack of understanding of our identity that because we no longer understand who we are or who we are created to be, we latch on to other people's identity and we line ourselves up with people who think at least in one area the same way that we do. And as we line up with those people, we begin to align all the rest of our views with that person who thought about whatever issue the same way that we did. And as we align ourselves, we begin to then look at people who think differently than us, not as people who hold different opinions or see the world in a different way, but we begin to look at those people as enemies, the other, people who are distinctly different than us. And Sayers makes the case, uh, there's, there's a lot more to what, uh, the case that he's making, things that we don't have time to go into today, but um, he makes the case that it's actually a lack of identity. If we understood who we are, then we wouldn't have that tribalization, those, that, that polarization, we wouldn't be so far apart Because we would understand who we're created to be, who we're called to be. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because in our social media world, like literally, as I'm preaching, if you have a smartphone, you can, uh, you shouldn't do this right now, by the way, keep your smartphones away. Um, But while I'm preaching, you could create an identity. You could go onto any number of social media platforms, and you could create an identity that may or may not have any semblance of uh, identity of who you are. It may look the same or different than you. But you, you could create that. You could create... A dozen of them. Some of you are like, no, I couldn't. I couldn't either. But other people could. You know, other people are capable of that. Uh, In and in that world, then we could very quickly begin to align ourselves with people who think like us, or people who we think think like us, or we'd like to align ourselves with. But just like that's true individually, that's also true at the corporate level. So anytime that there are groups of individuals together, those problems get multiplied. And so the the church. The gathered uh, group of Christians are in a very similar way facing an identity crisis. Who are we when we say that we're the church? What does it mean for us to say that we're the church? Uh, Elise mentioned a uh, welcome class that's coming on uh, this Wednesday. It's the very first step in. If you're trying to figure out York Alliance, it's the very first thing we would say, come to this first. It's a great way to kind of get that initial connection. But one of the things I would say about the Alliance, the broader movement called the Alliance, uh, historically, what I would say about it is um, we're a, a kind of middle-of-the-road evangelical Christian denomination. But now I I hesitate to use that phrase, evangelical Christian, not because uh, it's wrong, but because uh, I'm not sure what you hear when I say that. You may hear something that has to do with our theological position or the way that we view the scriptures, but you also may hear something about a political position or uh, the way that we uh, love certain people or not other people or are opposed to some things and not opposed to other things all because the church is in the middle of this crisis. Are we to be a political force? Are we to be a social force? Should we be, uh, should we be moving forward in justice? Should we be moving forward in love individually, corporately? Who, who are we supposed to be as a church? Who is the church? What does the church need to be about? Well, the good news is that's not a new conversation. Um, It literally goes all the way back to the beginning. Identity is at the core of the way that God has spoken into his people uh, for literally the entire history of the scripture. So if you go back to Genesis chapter one, literally the beginning, uh, God makes Adam and Eve, creates them out of the dust, and then uh, God speaks into them identity. He says that you are uh, in the image and likeness of God. God. That Adam and Eve are made in the image and likeness of God. And part of what that means, we don't have time to go through all the uh, theological details, but uh, what he's saying is your identity is to rule in my place this creation on my behalf. So you reflect my identity in the world and your job is to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over all of these different creatures. In the same way that I do, I'm giving that to you. You're reflecting that same identity. Of course, uh, if you are familiar with the way the scriptures flow, Genesis 3 is very quickly on the heels of Genesis 1. And that, that identity, that, uh, that reflection of God, begins to be broken as sin enters into the world. And so rather than a pure representative rule, we begin to be a cracked image or a broken image. We no longer fully reflect the image of God. And so our identity then in the same way, begins to have cracks in it. We're unable to rule and, and, and practice, exercise dominion in a way that represents fully the heart of God because we are broken. And if you're familiar with the narrative of the scriptures, there's this devolution that starts to happen. So um, from Genesis 3 all the way through to Genesis 11, it just seems to get worse and worse and worse and the representative of God uh, seems to go further and further away. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man named Abram. And he calls him with an identity statement again. He reestablishes identity. He says to Abram, I, I'm going to bless you and your family. Your family is going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky, the sands on the seashore. And I'm going to bless your family so that you would be a blessing in all the nations of the earth. So my goal, God says to Abram, is that you would be defined by, identified as uh, the one that I've chosen to bring blessing to the world. And so the family of Abraham begins to grow and expand, and Abraham leads to Isaac, leads to Jacob, and you begin to see little glimmers. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of bad decisions, you start to see little glimmers. But it's not until Joseph where we start to see this plan kick into high gear. So by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis, there's this man, Joseph, who, through a long series of uh, events, ends up in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. And Joseph, representative of God's blessing, is uh, is literally blessing the entire world through his position within the Egyptian infrastructure. He's sending out food and, and keeping people alive and being, being a blessing. As he's been blessed, he's being a blessing. And we think, like, if you're just reading the narrative, you're thinking, Oh, this is great. Like, this is exactly what God said was going to happen, that Abraham's seed, Abraham's family, would be blessed in such a way that they'd be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Great, this is perfect. And then you turn the page to Exodus, and that identity has completely broken down. What was a a chosen, favored position within the Egyptian infrastructure has now become a, a slave place. They are now an oppressed people. And Israel has forgotten who they are. Israel no longer feels, uh, embraces the identity as the people of God. Instead, they're the oppressed people. They're the slaves of Egypt. And God, hearing their cry, begins to speak to them again in identity language. And so again, he comes to them and says, You are my chosen people. You are my firstborn and as the, the conversation goes on from Exodus 3 into Exodus 5, 6, and 7, you start to see covenant language, actually marriage language. God proposes to Israel, and he says, you, you and I are going to literally, I'm gonna, literally going to move in with you, and we are together going to be a blessing in the world around us. He, uh, he identifies them once again. And so as, as Israel leaves Egypt... They're in this place of seeking to establish identity. They're, they're trying to understand who they are. And as they wander, complaining and grumbling, all the kind of ground we've covered over the last couple of weeks, God is preparing them to hear this statement of identity. And so I want us to listen. This is uh, now at the base of Mount Sinai, uh, the, the core law of god the the ten commandments and the the heart of what god is calling his people to be is about to be unveiled but that is uh, begun by not a law statement but by an identity statement by a statement that says this is who you are this is who you are to be and so hannah's going to come and read for us this is exodus 19 verses 1 to 9 i want you to listen to what god says about the identity of his people
1: On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever.
0: Thank you, Hannah. So there's three identity statements in there, um, and I want to make the case that they're not three distinct identities, but actually a unified identity that God's going to describe in three different ways. So uh, he talks first about the people being a treasured possession, and then he talks about us being a kingdom of priests who are also a holy nation. So a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You can think of that like the the why of our identity, like what's at the heart of our identity, the the how, uh, the what of our identity, sorry, the the what we're called to do, and then the how we're called to do it. Treasured possession, kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. But before we dive into this, I want to go back to a principle that we've looked at since we've begun the study of uh, Exodus. The very first time we looked at Exodus, uh, the point I tried to make as clearly as I could to you was the point that this story is our story. This is not just a historical narrative from a long time ago. It is that. Uh, It's not just uh, a recorded history in a way that we can come back and learn principles. But this is actually our story, that God has put us in the position of Israel, and the things that are happening to Israel are also happening to us. We need to be freed from slavery. We need to have identity stated over us. We need to be those who are formed and shaped into God's image so that we can be used by him in the world around us. This story is our story. And I want to, I want to show you that uh, by, if you want to stick your finger in Exodus chapter 19, I want you to flip all the way back to the back of your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, this is thousands of years after this statement was made at the base of Mount Sinai, God to his people. Thousands of years later, Peter is speaking to followers of Jesus. uh, Jesus has come, lived, died, rose again, and has ascended to heaven and uh, the, the apostles are calling people to himself, to, to Jesus, and there's all of these people now. The church has grown exponentially. All these people are following after Jesus, and Peter's writing to them. He's writing to a scattered and persecuted group of Christians, um, some of which are Jewish in background, uh, l- literally Israelites from their birth, some of which are Gentile in background, who have come to faith, and, and all of which are kind of... Um, trying to figure out identity in the same way that we are trying to figure out identity, trying to understand who they are. And Peter, as he's writing to them, is going to make a statement. And if you listened carefully to what Hannah said, these words are going to sound very familiar. So listen, this is starting in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, if you were an English teacher and you were grading Peter's letter, you might say, uh, that sounds like plagiarism, right? Like, like, That's literally exactly what God said to Israel in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, Peter says the same thing. You're a treasured possession. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. What, what's happening here? Well, Peter is telling the church then and us as followers of Jesus that this identity statement that God makes over Israel remains our identity today. And I want you to hear that up front because the temptation is as you listen to what God says to Israel to say, um, oh, that, that makes sense that they are those kinds of people or that God is doing that in them. But it's vitally important for us to get this as our story. And w- as I unpack this, there's not gonna be a whole lot that's gonna be like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I never thought of that before. But there does need to be for us a lot of sinking into our hearts that we would be the people that God's called us to be. This story is our story. And so um, let me take you back to Exodus chapter 19. At the end of verse 5, God says this, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. Now, it's important for us to get the context. Remember, the people of God have left Israel uh, le- or left Egypt, uh, led by God, and He's led them into the desert, and they promptly thanked God for all of His wonderful deliverance and leadership by complaining a lot. Remember that? Uh, so uh, they, they don't see any water, so they start to whine about that. They don't see any food, they start to complain about that. Uh, they 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 don't like the way the food's coming, so they go out on the seventh day instead of or they gather too much because they're not really sure, and then it turns to maggots, and they're upset because it maggots. Like who wouldn't be upset? And so there's this whole like thing, right? Um, and so they're just over and over again. They're complaining. They're complaining. They're complaining. And in the midst of that, God says to this complaining people, "You're my treasured possession." Like, in the midst of your temper tantrum, you're my treasured possession. In the midst of your complaining, in the midst of your unlovableness, you're my treasured possession. The word that's used in Hebrew is the word sagula. Can you say segula? segula? You're almost awake. That's beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, sagula. So the, the word is literally, it's a, it's a word that would be like the crown jewels, of a king's treasure. So, um, like in, in a kingdom, the king owns everything, so he has this whole treasure, but the sagula is this very specific, like uh, special treasure within the broader treasure. And that's what he says to this grumbling, complaining people who are wandering around just like throwing a fit all the time as they're like in the midst of a temper tantrum You're my sagula. You're my. Treasured possession. I picture like a, a toddler throwing a fit and she's like screaming and beating the ground and like yelling, and this father just coming over and rather than chastising, like scooping up and hugging and loving and quieting with love. That's what God's doing to his people. You are, you are my treasured possession. I, I, I say it a lot and I'm going to keep saying it because it has to sink into us literally the most important thing about you is the fact that God loves you right where you are and that means you're coming from a lot of different places like I I recognize speaking to a group like this you're coming from a bunch of different places and you all we all arrive at Sunday morning at a totally different trajectory and so some of us, Sunday morning is the capstone of a week just like spent glowing with Jesus, which is wonderful. That's great. I'm glad you're here. But for others of us, Sunday morning is like grinding gears in a car when you don't know how to drive stick, right? It's like, like whoa, like coming out of the week that you're in. Some of you are coming out of nasty stuff, rough stuff. And when you show up here, I can say with confidence to all of us equally, God loves you right where you're at. He loves you. He loves you embraces you, not based on anything that you've done, but literally in the midst of your temper tantrum. Like, in the midst of your brokenness, he loves you. And this becomes the why statement for identity. Because working out of the love that we have for God is dramatically different than working for the love that we wish we had from God. Uh, Let let me try to explain that. God, God is not saying... As you behave yourself, as you stop throwing a fit and as you stop trying to figure all this stuff out, uh, as you behave, you will then be my treasured possession. What he's saying is, among all of the people, the all of the earth, which all belongs to me, I'm choosing you and I love you and I want your identity, your work, to come out of that love. So the illustration I I always use, um, and I I couldn't think of a better one, so I think we're going to go back to it. Um, the, The in our kitchen, my wife Amanda uh, loves to have our leftover dishes organized in a, an appropriate, structured, like like set. Uh, if I'm not, not describing it as well, it's because I don't really understand how it works. But like, um, like, like in a really specific way that I I don't really. I like to have our leftover dishes have food in them. That's what I'm. That's kind of my deal. Um, but she likes to have them, uh, like organized and structured. And so, um, so. I've never one time in my life thought, you know, I, I feel my love for Amanda kind of waning. I just don't really feel close to her. I know what I'll do. I'll go organize leftover containers. That will help. If I just go, or I'm sure that will develop love for her. No, that never, ever happens. In fact, probably that would be the opposite, right? It would be like, but instead what happens is I'm unloading the dishwasher and because I already love her, because we have a love relationship that's already established and I know that she would really like to have these organized, I make a conscious effort to try to organize them. She would tell you not conscious enough. I'm still working on that. But um, a conscious effort to try to organize them. Why? Because I love her. Not in order to gain love, not in order to generate love, but out of the love that I've already been given. What God says to his people is, you are already my treasured possession. I, I love you. I've chosen you. Because of that love, now step into the fullness of what I'm calling you to do, because who you are is loved. Who you are is treasured. But then he says this, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. It's a fascinating statement, theologians agree. This is probably, although it's only here and in a few other places in the New Testament, it's probably the key identity statement for the people of God uh, throughout the scriptures. A kingdom of priests. What is it that we're to do as a kingdom of priests? Well, priests within uh, the the nation of Israel had two specific roles, and only two. Their, their, Their dual job was this. A priest was responsible to bring God to the people. So they would represent God to the people, speaking the word of God, uh, leading through the the process of worshiping God, uh, understanding who God is, and seeking to bring that to the people. And bringing the people back to God. So their job is to then uh, receive the sacrifices and receive the worship and bring those things before God. So the priest's job is to to be God to the people and be the people before God. They act as the hinge point between heaven and earth. And what God says to Israel is not that you will have priests, not that you will have a tribe of priests, not that some of you, the really holy ones, are going to be priests, but he says you all will be a kingdom of priests. Your identity on the earth is to represent God to all of the people around you. And your identity on earth is to represent the people before God. There's a natural role that you should be stepping into. And intuitively, if you're connected to people who are seeking after Jesus or just kind of trying to figure out life, you know how this works. Because um, if you are, uh, our friend Alex Absalom likes to say, outed as a follower of Jesus, if, if, if people know that you're a follower either because you've said that or because somehow uh, somebody has talked about the fact that you're a follower of Jesus, w- what will happen is people who are far from God, who are not interested in spiritual things, who are going through crisis, will come to you and say, I'm not really sure I even believe in this stuff, but would you be willing to pray for me? Like lots of you have had that, uh, that situation where somebody will come to you and say, like, I I'm not even sure that I get this, but I, I really need you to pray for me. And what you'll find is, um, like literally almost 100% of the time, if you say to somebody when they're in the middle of a crisis, hey, would, would it be okay if I would pray for you? Everybody wants that. It doesn't matter if they believe in prayer or not. They want that. Why? Because intuitively, they long for someone to be a priest for them, someone to bring God to them, and to bring them to God. It's also part of the way, the responsibility that we have as people who talk to God. So if you come to our First Wednesday gatherings, one of the things that we do on First Wednesdays as we gather to pray is we pray into the world around us. There's all kinds of stuff happening, and most of us don't have hands-on to what's going on to the other side of the world. But we can and should pray into those things because we're a kingdom of priests we people who are called to represent God to the people and the people to God, which is one of the reasons why I love in Acts chapter 17, um, one of my very favorite passages, Paul's talking to uh, the people of Athens, and as he's talking to the people of Athens, he, he makes this statement, that God has established the times and the boundaries of our living, that he's put us in a certain place at a specific time on purpose. And he says, God has established the boundaries and the times of our living so that people, as they reach out for God, w- wouldn't have far to reach because he's not very far from any one of us. Such a beautiful picture because what he's saying is, you and I are all called to be representatives of God to the world. And God's put you where he's put you, on your block, in your office, doing the things that you're doing, whatever it is that you're called to do, he, he's put you there, so that you would be a priest in that specific place. So the question is, if we're called to be a kingdom of priests, if we're called to all of us, not just some of us be a kingdom of priests, but all of us, the priesthood of all believers. I always joke, people are big on the priesthood of all believers until it's time to pray before a meal, in which case they always want me to do it. I'm not sure what's going on with that. Um, but we're, we're all called to be, the <laughs> pastors are laughing, right? <laughs> like, Yep, get it. Um, yeah, so, but we're all called to be uh, priests. How do we do that? What's it look like for us to be, because we're not all called to work full time at a church. We're not all called to uh, do religious duties per se. What, what, are we, what are we supposed to do? Well, he goes on to explain the, the how. He says this, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I just lost a few of you because holy either repels you and you're like, ooh, like that makes me feel weird. Most of us, when we think of holy, we think of like an amorphous kind of idea. It's like uh, faintly spiritual, but it's kind of tough to get our, our arms around. Like, uh, holy is like, like, you know, good, different than me, right? Like that t- tends to be the way that we think about holy. Holy, when, when the Bible uses the word holy, it literally means set aside for a specific purpose. So holy is something that has a specific use, and it's set aside for that use. So like throughout the law, you're going to see all these different tools that are, uh, that, that are commanded by God to be used within the temple, and those things are all holy. They're used only for that specific purpose in worship to God. So for you, when you see the word holy, there's a couple different ways you can think about it, but here's an easy one. When you think about the word holy, I want you to think about your toothbrush, So right now, just imagine your toothbrush, whatever your toothbrush looks like. Uh, Mine's kind of red, probably needs to be cleaned off around the edges a little bit. It's got that little, like, residue left on it, you know. Like, imagine your toothbrush. Your toothbrush is, stick with me here, the holiest thing in your entire house. Like, it... If it, let me say it this way: if your toothbrush is not the holiest thing in your house, you have problems. Like you have real issues. Your toothbrush is very specifically set aside for a purpose, and when it's not used for that purpose but used for a different purpose, it becomes desecrated and it cannot be used for anything else. Right? Like if you decide um, I'd like to clean the grout in my shower and you do that with your tooth, you better not put that in your mouth, like that's, like underneath the rim of the toilet, there's this, thing. like no, like that's no longer, like it's, it's, it's holy, right, it's set aside. And it's set aside very specifically, because uh, like, it, so I have, um, we have three boys, um, and like boys, sometimes they have a difficult time keeping track of all of their personal toiletry items. And so if one of my boys thinks, I can't find my toothbrush, I'll grab dad's toothbrush. First of all, that's, that's a serious problem. But that toothbrush is desecrated. Like I know that we have like, I, we share DNA and there's probably a lot of germ crossover and all of that kind of, thing. but like he, they, they can't use my toothbrush. Like when you go into our bathroom, Amanda has a toothbrush and I have a toothbrush and she's not to use my toothbrush. And I am not to use her toothbrush. Like those, those do not mix. Like they're, they're holy. Like we share a lot of stuff. You don't share that. That's like breaking 10 commandments. Like, oh, it's terrible. Like you can't do that, right? Because your toothbrush is holy. It's set aside for a specific purpose. When God says to Israel, you are a holy people, what he's saying is you have a singular purpose. That singular purpose is what you need to stay focused on, regardless of all the other identity statements that are swirling around you. So you are a kingdom of priests and you're holy, you're set aside specifically for that purpose. You might be called an engineer or a teacher or a doctor or you might be called a, a family member. You may be called somebody within your community. You may be called a brother or sister, or all the different things that you might be called. But you need to remember that your primary identity, you're a holy people. And your primary identity, the singular thing that you're called to do is to be a priest, to be at that hinge point between God and man. And all of that other stuff, it's just opportunities that you and I have to be priests because we're a holy people. We're set aside for a very specific purpose. Now you may say, yeah, but in verse five it says, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be a treasured possession among all the peoples. You should be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Like what about the fact that I don't feel really holy? How about that, I, I don't feel treasured. I feel kind of pushed to the side. I, I know that you say I'm loved, but I know what I did. I know where I've come from. I don't feel loved. Now what? Well, there, there's this fascinating uh, process that we need to follow along first, which is that when, when that if statement is made, It's made with a very specific intent in mind. God does not say, if you will follow my commands, I will save you from slavery. I will redeem you. No, he already redeemed them. He's already expressed his love to them fully. He does not say, if you follow my commands, then I will bless you so that you can be a blessing in the world. That's not what he's talking about. What he says is, if you follow my commands, then you will be able to step into the identity that I've created for you. You will be able to be on mission. Uh, Christopher Wright makes the statement that our obedience is not, uh, uh, when we obey, it doesn't create a pathway for freedom, for salvation. It doesn't create a pathway for blessing. It creates a pathway for mission. It's in our obedience that we are people who are on mission. And it could be that a lot of times we struggle with our identity because we're not people who are actively engaging in mission. Because we need to be stepping into mission. But you're still probably saying, like, yeah, but but I still am not following the commands. I'm not living within the covenant. So how do I, how do I step into that? Well, I don't have time to walk through all of the details, but I'll encourage you this week to read the short book of Ephesians in the New Testament. I'm going to give you a summary, but you can read through it on your own. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing Ephesians, is going to... Uh, in the first three chapters, over and over again, use a single phrase. The phrase in Greek is, in Christo. And, and it literally is just translated, in Christ. And, and what he's going to say again and again and again, uh, he's going to say, this is true of you. You are, you are loved because you're in Christ. You're adopted because you're in Christ. You're brought into the family because you're in Christ. You are, uh, you, you are saved through grace by faith that because, because you're in Christ. You're a, a treasured possession, uh, literally using that Greek word poema, a work of art, a masterpiece, because you are in Christ. Over and over again, for the first three chapters, Paul is going to uh, have this kind of logical flow without one command. For three chapters... For for those of you who think the Bible is a bunch of rules, for three chapters, he does not have one rule, not one command, not one thing that we're called to do. He just says, this is true of you if you are in Christ. So what do I do when Exodus says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession? Well, if you are in Christ, he has already obeyed his voice and kept his covenant on your behalf. He has already lived in such a way that you have been qualified into the inheritance on your behalf. We've been given freely the identity of Christ, not because we've earned it, but because he's given it to us, because we are in Christ. And so then Paul, in the second half of Ephesians, he opens Ephesians four with his very first command, with his very first directive statement. He says this, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So what Paul says is, um, all this stuff is true of you because you're in Christ, now I want you to live like it. So you're, you're already identified that way, now start to live into it. So you're a kingdom of priests, you are a treasured possession, you're a holy nation, you're already that, now start to live like it. So how does that work? Well, let me try to illustrate it for you. I'm going to show you a picture from a long, long, long time ago. Go ahead, Josiah, throw that up there. So that picture was taken 25 years ago this fall. And uh, you'll recognize the person in white because she hasn't changed in 25 years. Uh, The guy over there has lost a lot of hair and gained a lot of weight. But, uh, you know, this is us 25 years ago. On that day, what, what was absolutely true of us was that Uh, Amanda became a wife, and I became a husband. Now, we were 22 years old, and we had no idea what we were doing. Like we were, we were a train wreck. I mean, you can we'll have conversations with you. We can tell you some stories. It was bad, like bad. Like we had no idea. I had no idea how to be a husband. Like I didn't know. I didn't know how to be me, let alone be a husband. Like I was. I was. I was 22 year old and confused. Like I didn't know anything. I knew she was really beautiful and I wanted to marry her. That was it. That's all I got. And, and yet, over the course of 25 years, we've learned, she's learned to be a wife and I've learned to be a husband and we've grown into that and she would still tell you there's, oh, there's some growing that needs to be done. You know, there's the process still, you know, still like a, a little bit of uh, trial and error and all that kind of stuff. But, but what's true is, although I'm way better at being a husband today than I was 25 years ago. I'm no more a husband now than I was that day. I'm exactly the same status of husband. I just know what I'm doing now, a little bit more. A few years after that, um, on a late February day, we put this tiny little girl in the back of our car and drove home and the only thing that I could think as we were driving away from York Hospital was, it took me 16 years to get a driver's license and in three days they're sending me home with this girl. Like, are you kidding me? Like, somebody should not be allowing this. Like, where are the authorities? Somebody should step in because I have no idea how to be a dad. Are you kidding me? Like, I I have no idea what I'm doing. And yet, like, we had to take Tia home and we had to figure it out. Like, like, I kept waiting for somebody else to step in and raise her, but nobody, it just was our job, it turns out. On that day, I was as much a father as I would ever be but I had to grow into it. I had to learn how to be a father. Depending on what days, you ask my kids, some of them will tell you that I've gotten decent at it, and some of them tell you, <laughs> not today. But uh, it's, it's a process, right? Because we're all growing into it. Because what happens is God does this so that by the time we get to almost like we know what we're doing, they leave. So, you know, that's the way it works. Uh, but, but we're growing into it. But my status hasn't changed. I'm still just as much a father as I was then. It's always equal, and yet learning to walk into it. You are a treasured possession. You are loved by God more than you could possibly imagine. You are a priest representing God to the world and representing the world to God. And you are holy, set aside for a specific purpose. Now the call is for us to start to walk into it, for us to start to live that way, to, in Paul's words, live worthy of that calling. Not in a way that earns it, not in a way that qualifies us, that makes us better, but in a way that steps into the identity that we have. Part of the reason why we as individuals and the church more broadly is having an identity crisis is because we don't know what we're called to be. You are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, deeply loved by God. And when that starts to motivate the way that we live, we live differently. And so I want to ask you to start to live into that identity this week. To to meditate on it. Again, not new stuff, but instead taking those things that you know are true and saying, what would it look like if I lived that way? Not as an engineer or uh, not as a businessman, not as a Mom, but what if I lived like a priest? What if I lived like one who's been loved by God? How would that change the way that I live? And so I'm going to lead us just in a brief meditation. So I'm going to ask you if you just put your Bibles to the side, your notes to the side. If the worship team wants to go ahead and start to work their way up here, that's great. And what I want to ask you to do is just close your eyes and listen to the Spirit as he speaks to us as individual people. So just close your eyes. Maybe just take a deep breath. Just breathe all the way in. And then breathe all the way out. If you feel tense as you're doing that, maybe do that again. Just breathe in. Breathe out. And then rest in the fact that you are the treasured possession of God. You're the crown jewels of all that he owns. He's chosen you. He loves you. Not the future you that you hope to become someday. Not the you with all your stuff cleaned up. But the broken, messed up, can't quite figure this out you. Just rest in that love. You don't have to earn anything. Just receive it. He loves you. And regardless of what identity statements the world around you uses, whether those are vocational or positional, or familial, regardless of what you're called, you are a priest chosen by God to represent God to the people around you and to represent the people around you back to God. You've been given the high calling of being a representative of God in the world. And everything that you do is an opportunity to allow that identity to flow through you. And not only are you a priest, you are holy, specifically set aside for that work. Like all the stuff that you could step into, God says there's this one thing that you're made for. It's one thing that I've wired you for. I've created you for So Jesus, would you allow that to settle into our hearts? This is not just the story of Israel, this is our story. So God, help us to not just believe it in our head but to fully enter into it, to rest in it, to trust. There's some of us, even as I'm praying, that I know struggle to believe that God can really love you right like you are. Maybe really resonated with that part of Kristen's story where she just thought, when when I reveal that thing, I'll no longer be loved. When When that thing is seen, I'll no longer be loved. And you need to hear again today that he loves you right where you are in the midst of it, in the brokenness of it. He loves you. And so for some, it's just a matter of sitting in that, trusting that, hearing that spoken again. For some of us, that idea of being set aside, being uh, holy to the priesthood, to representing God to the people around us, like that's so far from the way that we live. And so, this is just a simple opportunity for repentance. Repentance, not in that uh, overly dramatic kind of um, like the broken thing, but just that that recognition of saying, "I haven't lived that way. I'm gonna. I need to turn back. I need to." reorient. That word just literally means to to turn. I need to turn again to this role that I've been called to, to to live in such a way that I bring God to the people and bring the people to God. That's what I've been invited to do. And so, Jesus, would you just settle those things into our hearts, secure them to us, help us to trust God, what you say is true about us and to live that into that identity. I know this is a spiritual work, not an intellectual one. So God, would you help us to experience the love that you have for us? Amen. Amen. As we respond and the team sings, it may be for some of us just an opportunity for us to secure those things, just to, to sit in that and just to say, yeah, that's true of me. And that's, if that's where you're at, that's great. It may be that uh, you need to turn, and that may be as simple as just writing in a journal, or maybe talking to the person beside you. But in both of those instances, there are times where having someone speak that truth over you is a really vital piece of the process. Having someone say to you, you are deeply loved by God. Having someone embody, like Joanne did to Kristen, the hands and feet of Jesus is vitally important. To to have someone hear your confession that I've not been living as a representative of God in the world. that I need to turn and I want to put a stake in the ground to do that. Uh, that, that can be a vitally important part of the process. So I want to invite you, if that's where you're at, to, to actually move from where you are. So we're going to stand in just a minute to sing. Um, and if you feel like you need to move somewhere to do something, I'm going to invite you to these altar rails. As we say each week, I want to remind you, this, this side is an opportunity for you to come and to be prayed for. So if you just need to hear somebody say those things that are true over you, um, that, that you need to uh, hear those words spoken with flesh and blood, this is a great place for that pastors and elders and intercessors to be able to come and meet you and pray over you. And on this side, it's just an opportunity for you to be alone with God. And so it may be that you just need to make a step forward um, and you just need to be in his presence. And if that's where you're at, I invite you to come to this side and just rest in him. Remember, loved by him, identified as a kingdom of priests, and set aside for that work, made holy. Would you stand and let's uh, sing together and respond.